The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to come before you as your church, to have your word opened. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work through this time that we have. Your word is opened and a preacher is standing in front of the congregation to deliver uh, something of, of value, but it will have no value apart from your working. So Lord, we ask that you would be about your business here in this place, that as we see your kingdom being built and strengthened, that we would see how you do that through the calling of people, through the calling of people like Jacob and his family, through the setting up of nations and the taking down of nations. Lord, you are amazingly at work in every detail. We can see the grand picture, and then we can zoom down in and see how you're intricately involved in in holding the most minute particle together by your power, whether that's a cell or an atom. uh, You are at work, and you are doing an amazing thing, and I pray that we would be able to see more clearly how it is you're about your business and that we would join you, whether it's a work that you're doing in our own heart in response to this word, or that we would be able to praise and thank you for a work you're doing on a grander scale. That we'd always be in pursuit of you. Use this time for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. In July of 2018, so just a few years back, my family took a trip to Colorado Springs. We went there to unwind, to spend some time together. And on one of our outings, while we were there, we drove to the top of this mountain called Pikes Peak. So many of you maybe have heard of Pikes Peak, but you can actually drive to the top of it. And it's a mountain that's 3,000 feet taller than Mount Hood. So we drove all the way to the top. And we were able to uh, do some exploring, eat some donuts, take in some vistas. And this was the first time my whole family had been there together. But it wasn't the first time I had been there. Because years before, I had made a trip with my military unit to Colorado, to Denver, and my commanding officer and I made a trip down to Pikes Peak to do some mountain running, and then to take a train ride up to the top, where I also ate some donuts. So... I was able to look back on that previous trip when I was there with my family just a few years ago. I had an earlier experience, and now a later experience, in the same place with many years in between. Have you ever had that similar opportunity where a different you, a younger you, a you who had different experiences were able to go and see something and be a part of something, and then 
years later, go back to that same place, more mature, more grown, more experienced, maybe with other people there to enjoy it with you. It can bring back all kinds of memories when that happens, when you go back there. Our minds try to bring everything back together, to meld it into, like, what does this mean? Now that I had that previous experience in this place, a lot of life lived, and then I've returned here now with with, uh, more of life under my belt, with my family, melding the old with the new. And this is the type of situation that we're seeing take place in the text with Jacob. Many years before, many years have passed, he was called to this place called Bethel. I don't know if you remember, but he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Esau was wanting to kill him because Jacob was doing Jacob-type things, taking his birthright, taking his blessing from his father. And Esau wasn't happy with that. So he, he got out of there quickly. He didn't have much to his name. The Bible says all he had previously when he crossed through that place was his staff. Yet when he went through Bethel, though he was fleeing death in an ugly situation, I believe he was content. He had what he wanted. He wasn't sure how it was all going to work out, but he was on his way. And then the most amazing thing happened while he was there. God revealed himself to Jacob. He called out to him and he opened up the heavens and he allowed Jacob to see the angels descending and ascending up into heaven from this place. It was a beautiful vision of the heavens opened. And the Lord made promises to Jacob at that place. And as is usually the case, he made those promises based on his own sovereign will. He didn't look at Jacob and says, because Jacob, you did this, I'm going to do this. He just said, Jacob, I'm going to do this. And he just spoke particularly of what he was going to do, not based on anything Jacob had done, purely by God's grace. It was undeserved favor that he showed to him. Much in the way of life happened between that first time when Jacob was passing through Bethel and the journey that we're going to cover today in today's passage. And just like us going back to a place years later, can bring about a whole slew of memories. For us, it's something that Jacob is going to have to deal with in a similar manner, commensurate with his calling. And as we've recently finished up Genesis 34, Jacob is once again in a place where he's afraid. He's concerned about what others will do to him. His sons have decimated the people of Shechem. So now he's, he's, he's assuming, probably rightfully so, that the people of that land are wanting to take him and his family out. He believes he's going to be destroyed. He, he needs an intervention. And maybe you have had this same concern. You've been running after everything else, but what you should be running after, and it's catching up to you. Your fear is rising higher and higher, and it seems as if peace will never be obtainable. And I have to say, apart from God doing a work in your life, you're right. Peace is not attainable. And for that reason, even with destruction, which might be 
taking place all around you or all around us, you have to recognize that there's a protective hand, a protective hand of God that is being outstretched to you. And he wants to shelter you from the destruction. He wants to calm your fears. He wants to give you a lasting peace. Let's look together now at how we can recognize the protective and outstretched hand of God so that we may receive the wonderful working of God in our life. We're going to start out by looking at this first point, which is recognize and respond. Recognize and respond. In verses 1 through 8, we're going to see how Jacob recognizes and responds. With verse 1, of chapter 35, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, I know I'm starting out with this point of recognize and respond. And in verse one, we read, God said to Jacob, and you're like, come on, like, I think I could recognize that if God just said, you know, Craig, come on over here, uh, or Mary, it's time to go. I know, I I get that, but stick with me. C.H. Spurgeon said, God will give us no new promise, but he will make the old promises look wonderfully new. God will give us no new promise, but he will make old promises look wondrously new. So as a church, we take a look at a statement like God spoke to Jacob and then, you know, something happens. We bring that in line with what this famous preacher said about uh, no new promises, but old promises wondrously new, wonderfully new. And we say, well, that makes sense in light of our high view of scripture. God has given us His word, 66 books of the Bible, inspired by God, fully sufficient for our life and practice in the faith. And so contained within his word are many promises, numerous promises. So though I don't expect you to come up to me and say, God said to me something, just as he spoke to Jacob in a Jacob-like way. I I would expect us as a congregation to frequently say, as I was studying scripture, as I was meditating upon sections of God's word, God was speaking to me. God was moving me. God was working through the power of his word in conjunction with his Holy Spirit to make old promises wondrously new in our lives, revealing himself to us. And that is how God speaks to us. That's how God reveals himself to us. So if we want to recognize and respond to God, we recognize this in his word. We take in his word and we say, this is where God is speaking to us. And we respond to what he is saying. So we can recognize that it's God's word, but we have to then respond to it. We can't just say, that's God's word, but I don't want anything to do with it. We recognize and we respond And so now we're going to look at, see how how Jacob responds. Jacob responds to the voice of God. In verse 2, we see this. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, 
Put away your foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. In the face of God's call upon Jacob's life, even when he's afraid, because remember, he's, he thinks that all the cities around him are going to tear him limb, limb from limb. He's afraid of these people. And even while he has no peace, even when his family seems to be barely hanging together, he knows with distinct clarity what needs to be done. God calls him. The first thing that he responds with is put away the foreign gods. God's doing a work in our lives. The first thing we need to do, put away the foreign gods. As the head of his household, he doesn't hesitate to speak into the situation that, is we- that he's well aware of. With God's call upon his life, he responds with an immediate spiritual house cleaning. He doesn't hesitate. This has to happen from time to time, and it has to happen from time to time in our own lives, in our own families, a spiritual house cleaning. And this is a role that Jacob takes as the head of the household. He says, I, I know what needs to happen. He's aware And men, it may seem like no one in your home is wanting to listen to you, but mark my word, if you take the spiritual well-being of your home and you take it seriously as Jacob seems to be taking it seriously, your family's hearts are going to be ready to respond to that. Just as Jacob demonstrates here, I I put forth to you that you're probably going to be surprised at how quickly your family will want to respond to that kind of leadership in your home. A quick response is what I would expect from such a leading. And so there's a pattern that we can follow. It's laid out here for us. It's the same pattern. It's a good one. We see these three things that Jacob has done. He says, put away, purify, and then he says, change. So what does, that, what does that mean? Put away. He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you. And in our context, put away that which is taking the place of God, taking the rightful place of God, that thing that would rob God of proper worship, proper time and adoration. It could be an obsession with work, a favorite social media platform, such as Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or a certain video game, or maybe a book that you like to read just purely for entertainment, but it's taken up hours and hours of time. It could be something that is being kept hidden from everybody else, but of course we know that there's nothing that's kept hidden from God. So that's the first thing, is you put these things away. You put them away. And then second is purify yourself. That would have to be some kind of a a ritual, in Jacob's time, a ritual of a, a cleansing some kind of a, a washing. We, uh, we have adopted as Christian faith baptism, which was a part of Judaism, which was a ritual cleansing. Before they'd go up to, to worship in the temple, they would take these, these baptisms in these pits. They'd dunk themselves in and then go on up to worship. And so this purify yourself, some kind of ritual that would commemorate the putting away of that which didn't belong. And so I would suggest that we don't be afraid to do something similar. If we've gone through the effort of putting something away, well, then commemorate that with a purification. 
And it's something that you can say, this is what we're doing, and this is why. Because then it sticks in our minds. Like, I've actually taken action. I've put something away, and I'm being purified from that for a, a reason. I want to pursue God more fully. We don't do it all internally, but we actually share it with, with those around us, those that we care about and that we know they care for us. We can purify ourselves. Those who, who care about us can walk with us as we grow in that manner. And then this last thing that Jacob calls his household to do is change their garments. You know, put on your best clothes. Change your garments. Again, it's significant only because it's showing everyone else, like, I am making a stand. I'm doing something different. I'm changing. Garments don't make a new person, but it's an outward symbol of an inward change that you're attempting to, to do through the working of God in your life. So an outward change for us, it might be like, well, now I no longer go to this place that I used to go to. That's an outward change that we might adopt. Maybe there's a certain place that you're like, every time I go there, I get myself in trouble. So my change is I'm not going to go to that place anymore. Or your change might be that, you know, there's a, a certain you know, phrase or word that I use that I know is not glorifying to God. So I'm going to remove that from my vocabulary. And that's my change. But these three things are, are very helpful. It's a pattern. Put away, purify, and change. As the Lord leads, follow this pattern in your life, which then allows for a response because God is asking Jacob to do something. Jacob follows this pattern, and then he's ready to respond. The response continues in verse 3 after Jacob has taken this action in his own household. He says to do all these things, and then verse 3, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the, to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. I so appreciate the, the clarity with which Jacob demonstrates here. One moment, one moment he's terrified, terrified of what the people around him are going to do all around him. And then God speaks with him and his whole worldview suddenly becomes clarified. He sees. He sees what needs to happen. He recognizes exactly, accurately, that the God who is speaking to him, the God that is calling him to go to Bethel to worship and build an altar, is the God who has answered him whenever he has been in a time of distress. Never failed. God has never failed to answer him in his time of his distress. And so that's how he, he says to his family, like, God is calling again. I'm in a time of distress, and just like, uh, just like clockwork, God shows up. I'm in a time of distress, and God's here. He recognizes that outstretched hand of care that God is providing to him, that protectiveness that God can provide to him. And he says, family, we, we need to get right, and we need to receive God's outstretched hand and go and worship him. It's wonderful clarity, which is brought to mind. And it allows them to now go to a place where they're going to worship God. And it's what we must do, for it's always been God who has seen, uh, I'm sorry. So they're going to do this so that they can go worship God. And they're doing it because they're in a time of distress. And God says, the best way to get out of your time of distress is come to me. Come to me. 
And so that's what they're going to do. They're going to go down to Bethel. And just the mere mention of Bethel, mere mention of Bethel, makes him think about that time when he went there before. On his way out of Canaan, up to Padan Aram, that first passing, and what happened there at that time? God appeared to him. God spoke to him. God made promises. God showed him heavenly things where heaven was opened and angels were descending and ascending. This all comes flooding back into the present. And what immediately comes to his mind is that the God has always answered him in the, his distress, wherever he has gone. And so this is what Jacob's going to do in the next few verses. The whole household, Jacob's family members, his servants, his hired hands, they're going to all do as the patriarch requests. They're going to respond to the Lord's hand of protection. And it's immediately noticed. It's immediately noticed that by them responding to God's call, now instead of him being in a place of terror, it's the cities all around the land that they're going to have to pass through. God's terror has fallen on them. It's a complete reversal. He was afraid, and now the people are like holed up in their cities with the terror of God upon them. The terror of the Lord comes upon all the surrounding cities, and he's able to travel without any, any hindrance all the way to Bethel, where he does as the Lord has commanded him. He responds to God. God takes care of the details, and he's able to go where God has asked him to do, and he builds an altar to the Lord to worship him there. He's obedient. He's able to go and worship the Lord. And present here in the text, at, this, at the place that is supposed to be a wonderful place of worship, Jacob is also met with the clearest sign of what is wrong with the world at the same time. So here he is. He's going to worship God. But along the way, he's met with the most obvious sign that sin has come into the world and corrupted it. And that most obvious sign is death. The sign of the fall that we face in life, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden that God had placed them in, he said, once you do this, death is going to enter in. And that's what Jacob experiences. In verse 8, there's a death of this dear member of his childhood household, Deborah. This woman who is called the nurse of his mother, she dies. And so they bury her. And this isn't the last time in this passage that we're going to deal with death because other members of the, of the household die. They pass away. And the reality of death in our, our passage today is, is there, punctuated multiple times. And even though relatively little space is given to Deborah on the page before you, we all know how it is when someone close to us, someone near to us passes away, it's no small thing. The lasting impact of the loss never completely departs. The anguish of the loss at first is most intense. When we first experience the loss, that's when it's most intense. But that doesn't mean it just tapers off from there to nothing. That's not at all the reality of our, our life, is it? We, we know that there are these spikes that come, and we don't know when they might come, but they do come. Strikes, spikes of grief come back when memories are stirred. Like when a place is visited again and the last time that you visited that place, 
was with your loved one that is no longer with you. Or maybe while you're watching a movie and it reminds you of him. Or the flavor of an ice cream. You're at an event and they're serving it and you remember that's, that was her favorite flavor. And then you start crying and no one knows why. Church, throughout this first section, Jacob recognizes and responds to what God has called him to do. And that doesn't mean everything is, is suddenly perfect, for clearly death is still present. But the family is being oriented toward God. The recognition and response to God's protective outstretched hand is met by God speaking. They respond to God. God's protective and outreached hand is there. And then God speaks. And this is our, our next section we're going to look at is receive and rejoice. Receive and rejoice when God speaks in verses 9 through 15. Uh, I'm just going to read a few of the verses to get us started. In receive and rejoice, picking up in verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you, your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will, I will give the land to your offspring after you. I'm going to stop there for now at the end of verse 12. So God is clearly for Jacob. There's no other way to read this passage other than to say God is clearly for Jacob. He has chosen this man to be the one to carry on the promises that, have been, that we've been tracing through the book of Genesis. We've been tracing these promises. He restates the covenantal promises again here, and then he expands them. There's more. There's more added. Not only is the promise of a great nation reiterated and a possession of the land, but we also see here God telling Jacob that kings are going to come out of him, that there's going to be this line of royalty that's going to come from him. And this idea that kings will come from him. This is a new idea, but it should, it should capture us. It should say, you know, from the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and, and say, well, I know for me, it immediately caused me to be like, wow, kings. Uh, and then I jump forward and I say, well, King David. I think of King David. And the many years later from that line, King Jesus, even as Ben was praying before we started, everything is culminating in Jesus and church, you might remember even the sign that Pontius Pilate puts over Jesus' head at his crucifixion. Remember what it said? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it surely gave great hope to Jacob to hear the Lord speaking in this way, in this manner. But it must give us, church, also a great hope to hear the Lord speaking in this way. Because... 
as we're listening to this message, we should have a renewed sense of hope in what God has been promising, making these old promises wondrously new. Think about this, kids. This promise, 3,700 years old or so, when it's being made to Jacob. Most of us gathered here today are Christians who are, who are humbly attempting to be fully devoted to King Jesus. King Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. And he reigns forevermore. He has been known throughout the ages. The one promised way back in Genesis 3.15, who would come to, to uh, bruise the head of the snake and whose heel would likewise be bruised in return by the serpent. King Jesus, who was at the creation with the Father and the Holy Spirit, being eternally existent, sent into the world to be born of the Virgin Mary because the Holy Spirit had come upon her. King Jesus, who lived the perfect life, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again on the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God, the Father. He will come again to judge the world. And in the time while we wait, the grace of Jesus' life is made available to the people of the world. When we get away from the lie of trusting in ourselves to figure out how to be saved, and we put our trust fully in King Jesus, in Christ's completed work, he does what we could never do. He grants us freedom from sin, from death, from eternal separation from God by reconciling us, by his atoning work. What we could never do in our imperfection, God did through the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, through his son. And this is what the whole story of the Bible is revealing to us a little bit at a time. Even here in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we cannot escape God's purposeful action being taken on behalf of sinful men and women. And as this interaction, this celebration, this fulfillment of what God has asked Jacob to do is, is expanding, it's also a fulfillment of what Jacob promised that he would do for God. For he did make a vow that first time he passed through Bethel and God revealed himself to him and spoke to him. Many years before, he made a vow and this, this concludes with then God going up. And he's remembering all of this. And God then all of a sudden goes up from him. And so here is where the rejoicing comes in. In verse 13, there's a rejoicing that needs to take place. This is where it, it enters into the scene. And it always must, fo must follow such an occasion. Whenever we interact with God, we have to rejoice. That's how we're designed to be. In verse 14, we see this here in the text. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, with God. A pillar of stone, he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. This is a, an act of rejoicing, of giving thanks and praise. This is an offering given to the Lord, poured out as a sacrificial offering to the Lord. Much, really, of what we're seeing in this interaction between Jacob and his family and the God Almighty is a foretaste of what we later see in the law as God reveals more to Moses and, and, and puts it into the law for his people to follow. 
We're seeing bits and pieces of that even before the law was given. We see an offering being offered here. It's not commanded, and yet it's something that he's doing. Later on, it gets codified into in the law of God, and the people practice that. This is just a foretaste of what comes hundreds of years later as Moses is, is given by God to direct his people. And church, this is a truth that cannot be passed up for us. He is directing us as his people as well. We can be easily caught up in pursuing things, other things. We ought not to, but he is patient, isn't he? He's patient with us. He's, he's enduring. He, en- he endures and he waits. And our responsibility is to respond, to respond to his voice. When he speaks, we receive what he says. We receive what he says, his, his word. We receive it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we take the steps that must be taken. For some of us, that means radical life change when God speaks and we receive. And we're changed so dramatically that it's obvious to the whole world. For others, your faithful response is so subtle that it's only something that God really sees happening. But it's a response. And it's something that we celebrate when we respond to God and when we change as he's calling us to change. We take just a great amount of of pleasure in knowing that God is doing a work inside of us. Whether it's a radical or a subtle change, it's all being done for his glory as as we seek him out. We rejoice in these victories. Sometimes they're grandiose. Other times they're they're small, subtle. But they all add up to victories that are being done in the name of the kingdom. God is doing a work constantly, constantly. We rejoice in these victories as they bring about. When sin is turned away from, that's a victory. When the gospel is shared with a friend and you've been sharing the gospel with this friend and all of a sudden you notice this time they actually really seem to understand what is being shared with them, that's a victory. We rejoice when a child clearly hears and embraces the faith once and all delivered for the saints. We rejoice in the victories that God brings about in our life. And when we recognize this protective and this outstretched hand of God, and we're in a place to receive the wonderful working of God in our lives, when we're in that place, it's, it's a beautiful thing and it's a thing that needs to be commemorated. And that's what Jacob does. He commemorates God's working by naming this place Bethel the house of God. Verse 15, the house of God. And of course, the wonderful working of of God in our lives doesn't always mean our personal life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that. Jacob lived a life full of travail. If you look at Jacob's life, it wasn't an easy life. And God doesn't promise that when he works in our lives that it's going to be an easy life. But we must consider the broader aspect of of God's working beyond what is happening inside of us. Although it's important what's going on inside of us, but we must remember that he's doing something beyond that. He's doing something around us. He's forming nations, church. And for the nations to be put on display, 
we have Genesis. It happens over and over again where there's generations. There's nations being built, and yet there's a, there's a story of redemption that's being told through one particular family. But that doesn't mean there aren't other nations. Our last major point is revelation of generations. I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. And it's going to help us understand this revelation of generations. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called his name Benjamin. Back in Genesis 30, verse 24, there was this, this prayer that was offered up from Rachel. May the Lord add to me another son. She prays this immediately after Joseph is born. May the Lord add to me another son. And here she gives her very life for the life that she's born. She's the favorite wife of Jacob. And she dies in the act of giving him a son, the son of his old age, Joseph's only brother. And this tears at our hearts. Think about a life given in this manner where a woman would die in the, in the bearing of a child because every time the child is then looked at, that, that's remembered for the rest of life. That there was an exchange given, the life of the mother for the life of the child. And it's not as common here in the West to have this. I mean, in our modern medical practices, childbearing has become safer. And then also, we don't have as many kids. So that also reduces risks. But here, Jacob's favorite wife, wanting to please her husband by producing a son, God said, even way back in Genesis 30, that he remembered Rachel because her womb had been closed. He listened to her and opened her womb, and she bore Joseph. And even while she's receiving Joseph, right after being born, she cries out immediately, add to me another son. And that, that prayer is answered here, and she dies bringing this other son into the world. But with Benjamin being brought in, in verse 19, we see that the sons of Jacob are complete. These are all of the sons that are going to be born to him. She died. They were on their way. And yet death is here again. And although these 12 sons, this nation is now complete, because God promised that he would make a nation out of Jacob. And we read all those names in verses 23 through 26 when we were standing here reading the word of God earlier. The 12 tribes of Israel take their names from these sons and they become the focus of a great deal of the remainder of the Bible. These 12 tribes. God uses them to advance his plan. This is a nation. 
the start of a nation that's being built here. However, with the death of Rachel comes the inevitable mourning and a commemoration of her life through burial. That's what it says in verse 20, that they, they were able to then bury her, set up a pillar over her tomb and the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. The people who have been called out by God know that this is a great loss. They know it. And when life is lost, we know it. Our sensibilities that God has put into us are greatly offended by death when we face it. When another image bearer loses their life, we cry out, this isn't right. And that is correct. Death entered in because of our sin. And the only cure for death is through Jesus who grants the forgiveness of sins. Yet in the middle of this time of grieving, another, another grievous event occurs. Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, his son, his oldest son, born through Leah, his wife, takes an opportunity to further desecrate his father by having sexual relations with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine. And why would he do such a thing? Well, it's possible that he was acting much like Absalom later on. We, we read that Absalom does something like this with David's concubines. When David has to flee the city, Absalom is, is ill-advised to take the concubines that remained in his household and to lie with them in order to prove to the public that he was the, the actual power now in town. So there was a usurpation of, of power that could be going on here. But whatever the reason was, it seems odd that no retribution is taken. We know that Jacob hears of it. But don't worry, in Genesis 49, should, should we get there, which I, I trust that the Lord tarries, we will, we'll see that Jacob doesn't forget. It comes out again. He doesn't forget this atrocious act. But here, again, in the book of Genesis, we see intentionality. We see the author providing us with very intentional details, purposeful details that play out in the role of God's plan. So this is Reuben we just read about. He is no longer a very favorite son of Jacob's. Reuben is the firstborn. In chapter 34, we saw Simeon and Levi take action against Shechem. And, and the people there. And they fell out of favor with their dad because they used their sword in a manner that he wasn't pleased with. So who's the fourth son? Anyone remember? His name is Judah. So these are details that help us understand more fully how we get to the place where now Judah is the one that the line is going to continue that's going to produce Jesus. We're going to get there eventually. There's going to be the kingly line, God's working. And these details help us. Even the noticeable element of, of a deliberate closing out of certain branches of the family presented so that the, the primary story can continue. And this is what's about to occur as we close in on the, on the, the passing of Isaac. In verses 27 through 29, we read, And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, 
or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. When Abraham and Isaac had sojourned, I'm sorry, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. So the two sons of Isaac, Esau and Jacob, come together at the end of this chapter, and they bury their father. He was old and full of days. And these sons, who were so antagonistic towards each other in their youth, come together to honor their father in his burial. These sons, who couldn't find it to to live together, who were more or less separated, found it necessary to come together to honor and bury their father. But in this, we're reminded that God was doing a work in these two men, Esau and Jacob, and it's the line of Jacob that's going to continue to play the primary role in the rest of the story of Scripture through the promises, promises God made. He said there's going to be two nations inside of of Rebekah when she was pregnant, and these two nations come from Esau and Jacob. And the offspring of Esau are Edom, like we read about in, in chapter 36. And this is keeping in God's word. It's, it's setting up the chosen and the elect, those that come from Jacob, who will be opposed throughout the rest of Scripture by the descendants of Esau. Famously, Esau is described as the one that God hated in Malachi 1.3 and Romans 9.13. So as we were, we're not going to obviously course through chapter 36 in the same manner, but there are some things for us to, to pick up on. If you'll uh, look at verses 6 and 8 of chapter 36 through 8, chapter 36, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Does this description remind you of another division that's already taken place in Genesis? It reminds us of what happened between Abram and Lot, Abraham and Lot. Remember, there, there were too numerous for the land to support them. So there was a decision that was made and they had to go their separate ways. And you probably have picked up on this, but if not, Lot's descendants, remember he has this incestuous, uh, this improper relationship with his daughters. And again, enemies to God's people arise from that family line. The Moabites. Lot's descendants end up being enemies of God, and just like the um, descendants of Esau end up becoming enemies of God. These are all details in the Bible. And as we're considering the open Bibles that are before us, like you, I see a long list of these hard names to pronounce that we were blessed to have Ben do that for us. 
But contained within this is evidence of God's working in the details of life, the making of nations. He told Rebecca, you have two nations inside of your womb. And these are the evidences of those two nations. Here in Scripture, these twin brothers, now as they are growing up and their, their descendants are being listed for us, we see these two nations. And in the book of Genesis, this is a familiar pattern, a familiar pattern that's present. There's a, a focused look on the, on the primary family that God's wanting us to be focused upon, the one that's carried along the promise. But there's also a closing out of another family saying, yeah, they're, they're not the one. So we're going to continue looking at Jacob and his family and his descendants. Esau's descendants are going to be playing a role, but they're going to be playing a role as antagonists. Part of God's plan of redemption is to work through his chosen people in his time and in his way. And that's why I say we have to not forget that God is at work on the big scale too. He's not only working on us inside, but he is doing a grander work even through the the very nations, the very nations that we see on the planet right now. God is at work directing the nations. And this is what's really being presented here before us, that, that we must be seeing God is tirelessly at work. He was, he is, and he forever will be about his kingdom's purposes, ensuring those who are, are his are carried along by his outstretched hand, his protective care. And my friends, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, to the Christians in Ephesus that they were not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we take a look at the division within Rebekah and Isaac's home that resulted in Jacob and Esau becoming two nations, we see the physical manifestation of this cosmic battle. When we take into consideration divisions we are seeing within our own nation or between nations, we cannot forget that the world we live in is fallen and it's inundated with sin and a cosmic battle is being fought in the heavenly places. Listen, God is not asleep at the wheel. He hasn't abandoned this place. He's actively involved in carrying out his plan. He wants you to be actively involved with him. Notice as we close how he patiently works in Jacob's life. He intervenes in such a way that Jacob's ready to respond. God intervenes at the appropriate time and Jacob's ready to respond. He calls to Jacob. And that means Jacob has to be ready to hear what the Lord has to say. He calls Jacob into a deeper relationship with him and tells him to travel to a place where they communed before, where Jacob had made a vow. He calls to Jacob to worship him there, now. And he does so. Jacob has to consider all that's frightening him and put it in place of where God is calling him And make a decision. Am I going to follow God? Is is he really going to do what he says he's going to do or not? And he does so. He goes through a land where he he claims, like, I've become a stench to all these people of this land. 
And yet he says, I got to go. God's calling me. I'm going to go through this land. I'm afraid, but I'm going to go where God's calling me to go. His family is, is fracturing. He's got kids that are doing their own thing. He's got a daughter who's been defiled, and he's afraid. Peace at the beginning of this story has completely departed from Jacob's life. And that's when God calls to him. Destruction was all around Jacob. And you might find that you have destruction all around you as well. And you have no peace in your life. And I urge you, if that's the case, to recognize that the God who knew everything about Jacob, all of his lying, all of his cheating, all of his conniving, all of his striving, the God who knew all about that and still reached out to him knows everything about us as well. Knows everything about you. Everything that you think, I, I can hide that. No, God knows about it. And he still reaches out his protective hand, his outstretched hand, his care. He wants you to take it. He wants you to recognize that his outstretched and protective hand is there. And he wants you to accept it and to be led by it throughout life. Jesus is that outstretched hand to the hurting world. He gave himself up so that the pain and the suffering brought about by sin can be dealt with once and for all through his atoning work on the cross, bringing a sure victory to the cosmic battle of every soul. Receive Jesus' outstretched and protective hand for you, my beloved. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who cares for us so much more than and we can ever care for you. You care for us. You know us. Just like you called out to Jacob at an appropriate time for him to respond to you, we know that you will call out to us and you will answer us in our times of distress. That was how Jacob identified you. The God who always answered during his times of distress. Lord, thank you for knowing us that well. For being where, where we need you to be at all times. Lord, may we respond to you as your people. When you're calling out to us, when you're reaching out to us, may we recognize and respond. Take what, taking what you've graciously given to us and being so thankful rejoicing, pouring out our offerings of thanks. We are your people, Lord, and we've come together today to celebrate being your people. And we thank you for being the one who has provided all things for us to have life eternal through Jesus Christ. Lord, Jesus is your outstretched hand. Jesus is God incarnate who has come to dwell among us, to, to know us perfectly, to go through life without sin, and to atone for our own sins. May we reach out and grow in our, our depth of knowledge and love and, and care for what you've entrusted in us. May it be proving itself worthy in a time of distress, a time of, of nations even fighting amongst each other and the cosmic battle being very real. May we cling to you, Lord, trusting you in all things. We thank you for the work you're doing through this word. We pray that it would, it would continue to have a fruitfulness throughout the week as we meditate upon the wonderful workings of your scriptures. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.